Genesis 21. If you have your Bible open up there, if you don't have one, get one. And if you come week after week and go, ah, I should have brought my Bible, when you go home tonight, take it out, put it by the door, get it ready. Or just read it every day, that'd be good too. Tonight, we finally come to the culmination of a 25-year-long promise. A quarter century of waiting. I don't know if you've experienced that in your life. I don't know if you've ever made a promise that you plan to fulfill in 25 years. Or if you've been given a promise that needed 25 years to mature, but it's been a quarter century of waiting But as Abraham and Sarah now learn, God delivers. Verse one of Genesis 21, then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. As he had said, and as he had promised, well the word promised is debir, in Hebrew it means spoken. As he had said, as he had spoken. Because if God says it, He does it. It's that simple with God. Not that simple with us. If we say it, we might do it. We might get around to it. We might think about it or we'll probably forget it. But if God says it, he does it. As he has said, as he has spoken. Numbers 23, 19, Moses said, has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Think about it. What if every single word out of your mouth had to be 100% absolutely true? Every word, and every word spoken had to find fulfillment. That you couldn't say anything that wasn't going to come to pass, and you had to be sure that it did come to pass. You had to follow through on every careless word. Anything that you speak or say. Listen, God must follow through. I I chose the word must on purpose. He cannot not follow through. He, by nature, can't say it without doing it. It's it's a literal impossibility with God because God is as good as his word. Psalm 138, you have magnified your word above all your name. So if his name is worth anything, his word must be worth everything. When God speaks, he does it. He never maneuvers. He doesn't politic. He never manipulates people. God never finagles our faith. He never toys with our trust. And yet some people view God that way. He's playing with me. He's messing with me. Oh, he said, but that doesn't mean he'll do. Or as Rachel was telling me earlier today, she was talking with a a friend this last week, just waiting for the next shoe to drop just waiting for God to let her down. Isn't that what we talked about on Sunday? He doesn't. And what about my life? What about my circumstances? If God says it, God will do it. Maybe not on your timetable. Maybe not when you expect it, but he must follow through. It's a very human perspective to look at God and say that he's messing with us or say that he's not being completely straightforward here. That's human. That's creating God in our image. 
Because yeah, we would do that. We would mess with each other. We would suggest something to try and get things to go a certain direction where we really didn't mean it, but we know if we say it, we can get what we want. See, God doesn't do that. If he says it, he does it. Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away, Matthew 24, 35, but I'm hearing a rumble. My words will never pass away. If he says it, he does it. He must follow through. His words are everlasting. You know why? Because God's everlasting. And that's where we're, we're different. We have a beginning. He has no beginning. Now, like him created in his image, we will not have an end. Praise the Lord, we're gonna go on with him by faith in Jesus. But when he says it, it must be followed through. There, there will never be anything left hanging. Not gonna get into eternity and go, okay, but Lord, what about that thing that you said? He must follow through. You might note this. I'm gonna give you four things to jot down as we go through the stories of this passage. And then I'm gonna give you four more things at the very end quickly. And the fourth thing of the first set is gonna be after I've done some of the, I think like three things of the second set. So I'm just, my, my aim tonight is confuse you. <laughs> But four things to jot down, and the first one is simply this. God never fails to keep his promises. He never fails to keep his promises. God delivers, verse two. So Sarah conceived. 25 years since God said, Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. That is right on time. Precisely when God said, the appointed time, ha-moed, we've talked about this word many times, the moedim are the appointments of God, the appointed seasons, the appointed feasts are often referred to as the moedim because they happen at a precise time throughout the year. Ha-moed, at the appointed time. And by the way, it's the same exact phrase he's already used with Abraham and Sarah. Back in chapter 17, verse 21, to Abraham, he said, my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you, Hamoed, next year, at the appointed time next year. To Sarah, he said in Genesis 18, 14, actually, he said it to Abraham, but he said it so she could hear, is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the Hamoed, at the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son at the appointed time. For the first time in decades, Jeff, I missed an appointment. I couldn't believe it. I'm sitting at the office Friday afternoon, twiddling my thumbs, I don't know, I may have been picking my nose, and I, I didn't even realize that at three o'clock I had an appointment with my bro, Jeff Colvin. Whoops. He's here, so we're good. You know when I realized it? 10 o'clock Friday night. Yeah, I'm, I'm sliding into bed. I grab my phone. And I'm looking at the calendar for tomorrow, and first thing that came up was today, and I saw coffee with Jeff at three. Oh, no! And guess what I didn't have? His phone number. And he didn't have mine, so we were like, no way of contacting, no way of putting this thing together, so I just had to wait until Sunday in shame all through the day, just hanging my head on Saturday. I didn't hear my phone alarm go off. I didn't feel my watch buzz. So really, Jeff, it's not my fault. My tech failed me. <laughs> it was my tech. 
You know, all this stuff, our technology, our alerts, our reminders. Man, Saturday was like my own personal Iowa caucuses. It just, it didn't work. <laughs> Man, you can have an office assistant like we've got here at Ieva, stand on top of things. You can even use Post-it notes, but it can't overcome your human fallibility. You will miss something sometime, or at least I hope you will, because it'll make me feel a lot better. We all can miss it. God, not only does God never fail to keep his promises, God never misses an appointment. He never misses an appointment. John chapter four, verse three. I love these little things that are sprinkled throughout the gospels where it says Jesus left Judea and he went away again into Galilee and he had to pass through Samaria. Listen to that language. He had to pass through Samaria. Exactly, Ethan. He had to pass through Samaria. What, had to? Guess what? No, he did not. As a matter of fact, as a Jew, he would not have passed through Samaria. And if you look at your map, if you're in Judea and you want to head north to the Galilee, what most Jews would do is hop to the other side of the Jordan or at least walk right along the shoreline and bypass Samaria completely. It's fine, daughter. Really, it's not distracting. They're just my grandkids, but... Uh... He, he had to bypass Samaria. That's what the Jews did. They didn't go through Samaria. You don't have to go through Samaria if you're a Jew. You avoid it at all costs. But God never misses an appointment. He had to go to Samaria. Why? John chapter four, there was a woman waiting in a well. Actually, Jesus would be at the appointment early so he could be there when she arrived. He never misses an appointment. Guess what? <laughs> John chapter 11 Someone might say, well, didn't he miss a funeral? Wasn't he late? John chapter 11, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. There's a very special bond here Jesus had with these, these three. And so the sisters sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by this. And I'm sure at that point, all the apostles went, oh, good, he'll be fine. Not a big deal, Jesus called it. Until word comes that Lazarus is dead. Did his word fail? Did he miss an appointment? Verse five says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, and I want you to know something that when they sent word to Jesus, they said, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick, and if Jesus loved Lazarus, he would not have been late. He would have gone directly there, but he didn't love him. <gasps> what? Oh, not the way the scriptures describe it. Lord, behold, he whom you phileo is sick. He who you love like a friend. Your friend is sick. And if it was for friendship's sake, Jesus would have hightailed it to Lazarus. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying that it says in verse five that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus agape. And agape does the better of the two. Agape always looks for that which is far greater, far more unconditional, far more eternal. And so agape was late by my calendar. 
But Agape was right on time to do what needed to be done. After this, he said to the disciples, let us go again to Judea. And so the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? Are you to go back into the danger zone, Jesus? And he answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. That's great, Jesus, but Lazarus is dead now. What's the deal? What are you talking about? Light of day, darkness of night. The disciples were worried about going back to Judea, to Bethany, which is right over the Mount of Olives, to see Lazarus at this time, worried about the danger to Jesus, the threat of the Jews who wanted to stone him. But Jesus says, are there not 12 hours in the day? What are you saying, Jesus? There's still time. I still have a few hours of daylight left in my life before nightfall. So we got time, let's go. Jesus is right on schedule. His calendar perfectly in sync with the Father so that God would be glorified in the raising of Lazarus. He never misses an appointment. He knows exactly where he's supposed to be, when he's supposed to be there. John 13, verse one says, now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world and to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. You see, Jesus' calendar was in sync with the Father's. How about yours? Is your calendar in sync with the, see, mine wasn't Friday afternoon at three o'clock, but is your calendar in sync with the fathers. If we follow the light of the world, then our calendar is in sync. If our eyes are fixed on Jesus, then we will be where we're supposed to be when we're supposed to be there because he is and he knows his appointments and he never fails to keep them. So we keep eyes on Jesus, following him and therefore functioning on the calendar of Christ. By the way, do you know what the next big appointment is on God's calendar? Bingo. <laughs> First Corinthians 15, 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. And that moment, my friends, is a hod moed. It's an appointed time. It's a guaranteed appointed time. Daniel eleven thirty five. some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine and purge and make them pure until the end of time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. God's got a calendar. And he's got appointments on it that he will keep. Now, Jesus also said in Mark 13, 32, but of that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Take heed, Jesus says. Keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. But he knows. Eyes on Jesus. We don't know when, but we know that the when has been appointed and so we can know by experience, God never fails to keep his promises and God never misses an appointment. Verse three. So Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, I remind you, right on time, whom Sarah bore to him, laughter, Ishtak, Isaac. And then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. God commanded Abraham. He would repeat it in the law of Moses, the eighth day, the day of circumcision. 
Now Abraham, verse five, was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? <laughs> Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. He was born, he was circumcised on the eighth day, and then on the day he was weaned, they had a great feast. So Abraham's tent was filled with laughter, but recognized we've just gone to birth, to the eighth day, to the third year of little laughing boy. We just skipped three years. Three years of, of laughter and of joy, and especially right now, why not the celebration on the day of circumcision? Well, they probably celebrated then. Why not on the day of birth? They probably celebrated then, but now, now it's important, now it's huge. Abraham throws a big celebration because Isaac is weaned. And the scriptures are big on this. To no longer be dependent on mother's milk is a day worth celebrating. And I'm not talking about celebrating for mama. In the Bible, getting off milk means to be getting to the solid food of faith. The protein, the strength of our faith, the meat, if you will, or the veggies, that'll work too, of our faith. That which fills us and strengthens us and the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, verse one, I could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to receive it yet. Indeed, even now you're not yet able, for you're still fleshly. You might say infantile. For since there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? Now listen really carefully to me on this because this is a, a different way of thinking perhaps than, that I've had, I don't know about you, but the Hebrew writer also says, for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, he's an infant. Hebrews 5.13, Hebrews 5.14, for solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Here's the thing, a milk diet is observable observable. That is, you know someone, don't go looking at other people. Actually, we need to look at ourselves. This is mirror time. A milk diet is observable because my behavior is infantile. A meat diet, a solid food diet of the word of God takes me from infantile to mature, but it's the maturity thing that I want to get at. Man, you can hear the word of God all day long. You can be a student of the word and still be a big fat milk baby. Solid food is for those who practice the word, for those who do the word, for those who, get this, those who treat others by the word. And this is sometimes where we can fall short because maturity of faith is not expressed in how many verses I have memorized. It's not expressed in how many times I've read through the Bible, although you can't really do that without it affecting you. It's not expressed in how many sermons I've downloaded for the week. Maturity of faith is expressed in one word and one alone, agape. It's Jesus waiting and going to Lazarus when the benefit would be far greater to the glory of God. 
It's agape. When we are weaned from learning that God loves us, hey, that's great. But when you discover that God loves you and you bask in the love of God for you and you live your life enjoying the fact that God loves you, you're probably still on milk. But when the love of God affects you so much that you begin to love others the way God loves you, now you've moved on to meat. Now the word's taken hold. Now there is a change. 1 John 4, 17, by this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. What do you mean, John? As he is right now, God of love, so are we as his representatives in this world. There's no fear in love. And again, this is the difference between a milk baby Christian and a meat-loving Christian, a solid food mature Christian, is that in this world, we don't fear, we're not worried about, we're not concerned about our salvation, we're concerned about someone else's. Because I know God loves me. I know I'm secure in his grace, in his work. So I don't spin my wheels all day long wondering, am I saved, am I okay, is this okay, God, are we good, are you and me good? No, rather, I know we're good, not because I'm good, but because he is. I've got his grace, it's all good, there's no fear in love, perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. Oh no, what if I'm not okay with God? Here's your bottle. But the one who fears, John says, is not perfected in love, We love because he first loved us. There's your meat-loving Christian. There's your solid food believer because the, the solid food of the word nourishes this strong, confident faith that expresses itself in love. And that's the key. That's why in the middle of the spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, and I'll show you the better way, love. That is the greatest expression of the word of God in you and the spirit of God in, upon, and alongside you is how you love. Love. The day of our weaning is the day that we begin to love the way God has loved us. And that, my friends, is a day worth celebrating. By the way, the more you feed on the solid food of the word, the sweeter it gets. And we start with milk, We get into the solid food and then it becomes to us, Psalm 19, verse 10, more desirable than gold, yes, more than much fine gold, sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Well, back to Sarah and Abraham. It's weaning day and they're celebrating and it's a marvelous time and a great feast is is happening and there's joy in the tent and there's laughter in Abraham's house, mostly, not for everyone. Someone's not laughing. Verse nine, Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. Therefore, she said to Abraham, drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son, Isaac. Sarah. Sarai drove out pregnant Hagar before. Now Sarah drives out Mama Hagar and her son or says, that's it, I'm done, I've had it, no more. And I read that, and I don't know about you, but it does seem a little extreme. Like maybe Sarah's, you know, chill, Sarah, come on. 
You know, I understand he's, he's making fun of the baby, so tell him not to. You know, discipline him, whatever you have to do, but drive him out. And what we have here in verse nine with the mocking of Ishmael, mocking Isaac, we have the first Arab-Israeli conflict. <laughs> we truly do. This is the first time that there's gonna be any sense of contention between Ishmael and Isaac, and it would continue for 4,000 years. And it's as bad today, if not worse, than it has ever been. But get this, understand what's happening here. Isaac, little Isaac is now weaned, so three years old. Maybe little, you know, upper twos into three. He's weaned, so he's a toddler. Ishmael, by this time, if you do the math, is 17. The teenager is a threat to the toddler. We're not just talking about older brother bullying. We're not talking about the five-year-old knocking over the three-year-old, you know, or the 10-year-old getting in a fight with the eight-year-old. We're talking about a 17-year-old mocking a three-year-old, but I think it's worse than that. Understand first, there are a couple of ways to respond to the promises of God and the appointments of God, and that is you can either respond with the joyful laughter of faith or, like Ishmael, the scornful laughter of flesh. Ishmael chose to be scornful. The word mocking here, and you might just note this, it's mishachek. Mishachek can be translated mocking laughter, which is why most of our Bibles say mocking. It can be to laugh at someone. It can be scorn. It can mean to toy with them or taunt them, but it can also indicate, and I just have to share this, molestation. This word is used of molestation in the Hebrew language. What was Ishmael doing that was so bad that Sarah would say, get him out? And I don't wanna get beyond the word, but I'm telling you that that word can mean that. And in the same way, the flesh, our flesh can mock, scorn, threaten, and even molest our spirit. Fight against our spirit. Turning your Bibles back to Galatians chapter four. Galatians four in the New Testament. What Moses calls mocking, using this word of Ishmael, or, or taunting, or perhaps, perhaps molesting, Paul calls persecution. So whatever it was, it was very serious. Serious enough for Paul to use the word persecution to describe it. And in Galatians chapter four, verse 21, if you're there, Galatians 4, 21, Paul says, tell me, you who want to be under law. Now, let me make something really clear for you here. Paul is talking to Jews, Jewish believers in Jesus. This is early church stuff. This is an early letter, the letter to the church at Galatia. These are Jewish Christians primarily still. The gospel is starting to get out, but not much. Still, mostly the church is Jewish. So he's talking to Jewish people about Jewish things and the expression of Jesus in their Jewishness, and he says, tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? That is okay, you wanna be under law, you wanna be legalistic. Let's go back to Torah and see what Torah tells us. Verse 22, it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. The son by the free woman through the promise. Now, Paul says, this is allegorically speaking, but these are two covenants. 
one proceeding from Mount Sinai bearing children who are to be slaves, she is Hagar. This is shocking what Paul's saying. Speaking to Jewish believers and, and telling them that to be children of the covenant, the Mosaic covenant coming down from Mount Sinai and to be bound to the law means you are a slave like Hagar. This Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. Wow, this is almost offensive. I can see Jewish people reading this and tearing it in half. Verse 26. But the Jerusalem... <laughs> Someone told me the other day I'm too political. I don't think so. Verse 26. But the Jerusalem above is free. She's our mother, Paul writes to his Jewish brethren. He's talking about grace, that this whole thing was to bring us to grace, that it is by grace you have been set free, Galatians chapter five. Grace was a tutor to bring it, the law was a tutor, sorry, the law was a tutor to bring us to grace. So our mother is the mother of children who are free. And he says, for it is written, now note this, rejoice barren woman who does not bear, break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. He's quoting Isaiah 54, and he's making this really cool parallel all the way back to Sarah saying she was desolate, she was barren, she was also pre-law. She had a baby, and that's where we come from, Paul is saying. That's by grace. That's children of the promise, not children of the flesh or children of slavery. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him, so Ishmael persecuted him, Isaac, who was born according to the spirit. So it is now also. It's going on right now, Paul said. Ishmael is still persecuting, scorning, mocking, molesting those born of the Spirit, the Isaac. And then he says, verse 30, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free woman. But that quote in verse 30 is quoting directly from Sarah. Read it again. Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. And it sounds so beautiful and so scriptural until you hear Sarah saying it. Drive out the maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. Drive him out. I don't want him in my house anymore. Wow. Romans 13, verse 14 Paul said, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. Make no provision for Ishmael. Drive him out. The picture here, again, allegorically, drive out Ishmael, drive out the flesh. You are children of freedom, not children of slavery. So Abraham doesn't make any provision for Ishmael, watch this. Back in chapter 21, verse 11, it tells us the matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. Which son? Ishmael. Abraham, I don't know 
if he just wasn't aware what exactly happened or whatever, but his distress came after Sarah said, drive out Ishmael, and Abraham himself was distressed. Why? Well, he loved Ishmael. Kid's 17 years old now. He's had 17 years with him. It's not like he was 13, then I can understand driving him out, but he's 17. I'm kidding. 17 years old. He loved him. He was distressed because of him. How many of you have ever known there was something in your life that needed driving out, but it distressed you to think about being without it? I don't know if I can live without that. I know I shouldn't have it, but man, it's such a part of my day. Abraham was distressed, but God said to Abraham, do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her, for through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. Note this, verse 12, God said to Abraham. This is not an appearance or a vision. This is not like the other seven or eight times that we've talked about where God literally appears and talks to Abraham. This is, he's just talking to him. So, so he's hearing God. So guess what? Abraham's back in fellowship. Abraham, who went through a season of disappointment, as we talked about on Sunday, is now back in fellowship. He's hearing the Lord again. It's really hard to hear the Lord when I'm disappointed in him, when I'm not recognizing that God does not disappoint. It's just that I don't understand. But now Abraham's back. He's hearing God. And God says to him, don't be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you to do, do it. Wait a minute. Ishmael was born because Abraham listened to what Sarah told him to do. Wasn't he? Isn't that a problem? And now God's saying, listen to Sarah. Well, I'm confused. Most husbands are. When do I listen to her? When do I not listen to her? Happy life, happy wife, or vice versa. But what if she's wrong? Ladies, no offense, but sometimes you are. <laughs> Tell Cheryl all the time until I realize that she's not. Remember what we talked about back in chapter 16. Let me just underscore this again. Husbands, listen to your wives as long as they're listening to the Lord. Man, of course you should listen to her. If she's not listening to the Lord, be a man, stand up, and lead in the direction of the Lord. Love her enough to say, you know, I don't think we're listening to Jesus on this one. But if she's listening, listen to her, and Sarah, in this case, get this, it's a little surprising, but Sarah is squarely in the will of God. Drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son, Isaac, and God says, yep. Sarah's right, listen to her. What? Yeah, Sarah's right because Sarah's concern is keeping the covenant child safe. And so is God's. And Sarah is right in line with the Lord. Now, we gotta get out of flesh to understand this because again, you can read this and the circumstances of the story and you can just say, it just doesn't seem right. Drive her out. That doesn't sound godly and yet, and yet from a godly perspective, he's God who never fails to keep his promises, God who never misses an appointment, and number three, he's also God who's never short on provision. He's got this. He's got it. Verse 13, and of the son of the maid, 
I will make a nation also because he is your seed, God says to Abraham. So who claims responsibility for Ishmael at this point? God does. God says clearly and directly to Abraham, he's no longer your business, I got him. I will take care of him. You do as Sarah says. He needs to be out of the picture. The covenant child needs to be your total focus. So fix your eyes on my promise and I will take care of your mistakes. You follow after what I told you we were going to do together and I'll take care of these other issues. And so in verse 14, and this is, again, if you're looking at it in the flesh, it's increasingly shocking. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder and gave her the boy and sent her away. Well, that's nice. Not even a sack lunch. There's a little Perrier and some moldy bread. See ya. Wouldn't wanna be ya. And out they go. She departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. And I read that and think, what a heartless thing to do. Yeah, if you don't trust God. If you're not paying attention to what's going on in the story, from a flesh perspective, Sarah's just mean, right? And, and Isaac's helpless. Ishmael and Hagar, well, they're victims of the whole thing. And Abraham is caught in the middle again. That's what the flesh sees, but what the spirit sees from the spiritual perspective the covenant must be kept safe. And the Lord has this covered from every angle and every aspect of the story. God's not just concerned with Isaac or Ishmael or Hagar or Sarah or Abraham. He's concerned with them all. And he's got them all. Send Ishmael and Hagar out. I got them. Again, they are not your concern. Consider that when you have to send something away that distresses you. And it is interesting that Abraham is the one who has to send them away because Abraham's the one who went into Hagar in the first place. And sometimes our old sin behavior, we're the ones who have to send it away. We're the ones who have to say, no more. I'm not walking down that road anymore. I know I made that decision. I know I made that choice. It's time to walk away from it. Time to let it go. In fact, and I'm gonna touch on this in a little bit, but how much of our sin keeps us from doing what God's asked us to do? Well, I can't do that because of my past. Time to let it go. Time to drive it out. Watch this, verse 15. When the water in the skin was used up, she left the boy under one of the bushes. Oh, it sounds so horrible, little toddler rolling around and screaming under a bush. No, he's 17, and then she went and sat down opposite him about a bow shot away, for she said, do not let me see the boy die. And she sat opposite him, opposite him and lifted up her voice and she wept. Uh, quick point, it's interesting. She sat a bow shot away. Why a bow shot? Luke asked the question this afternoon. We were talking about this and he goes, what's the deal with a bow shot? Could it have anything to do with the fact that down in verse 20, Ishmael became an archer? Which is really interesting. And your mind can really spin out a scenario there. She's a bow shot away. How do they know? Because she's sitting, sitting there going, maybe I just need to take care of him right now. So he grew up to be an archer. <laughs> 
That, you know, and people can go weird places with scripture sometimes. I don't believe that's what it's saying at all, and I'll show that to you when we get to verse 20 in about an hour and a half. So, <laughs> down here in verse 17, continuing, she's sitting over a bow shot, it's just a bow's distance, you fire an arrow, so she's just, you know, far enough away where she can see him, but she's, she wants to, she does not want to watch him die. He's over here, she's over there, she's weeping, guess what, he's weeping too. Verse 17, God heard the lad crying. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what's the matter with you, Hagar? Do not fear, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad and hold him by the hand, for I will make a great nation of him. And then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. You know what? God is, is this number three or number four? Four. God is never short on provision. He's never short on provision. Yes, Abraham gave her a bottled water and some wonder bread and sends her out. But God's the provider. God's got her taken care of. He's never short on provision. Well, how come my money's so short at the end of the month? Man, I don't know, talk to him. He's doing something with you. But did you eat this week? Are you dressed? Was there a roof over your head? God doesn't always provide what I want, but I'll tell you what, he has always provided what I needed. Sometimes it was very little. But he is never short on provision. Abraham clearly understood this. God's the provider of Hagar and Ishmael. And so he's able to let them go. And that, that, this is an act of faith, my friends. Abraham is trusting God to care for his son and to let him go. But something's interesting here. I want you to note this. It's different because now God's coming back to rescue Hagar in the wilderness a second time, right? He already did it once back in Genesis 16. Now we're back, Genesis 21. He's got to rescue her again. She's just been driven out, driven out by Sarah both times. Well, first time, Sarah says, do it, and Abraham, and then second time, no, Abraham sends him out. Both times, God hears. Both times, God responds. The last time, Hagar was pregnant, and now she's a mother of a teenager who threatened the covenant child. That alone is different. The last time with pregnant Hagar, weeping out in the wilderness, lost and alone, the angel of the Lord, Malach Yahweh, met Hagar at a well. Remember, we compared that to the Samaritan woman. There, there's a meeting at a well that takes place. And God comes to her, the Malach Yahweh, the angel of the Lord. I, I believe Jesus, that in, in the God in visible form. The pre-incarnate God shows up there at the well and talks to her, and she calls him Elroy, the God who sees. Well, this time, it's not the angel of the Lord. This time, it's the Malach Elohim. It's the angel of God. Still Jesus, I believe, because we'll see it other times. The angel of God and the angel of the Lord both speak with the authority of God, both stand in the position of God. But interesting, this time, he doesn't meet her at the well. He calls to her from heaven. There's a little distance here, folks. He doesn't go to her. He speaks to her. He tends to her. 
The last time when he met her at the well, he was Elroy, God who sees. This time, he opens her eyes to see a well and to get some drink and to fill the water. So God is still compassionate. God is still following through on his promises, but now he has clearly chosen his chosen people. It's through Isaac. He will interact with them. He will focus on them. It's kind of like Jesus saying to the apostles, go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So there's a very distinct move here on the part of God with the covenant child and with the line of Isaac. He's saying, this is the line I will deal with. I'm still gonna keep my promise. I still care. I'm still gonna be sure Hagar and Ishmael are all right, but I'm not going to them. We're not gonna have another meeting at the well. I will call to them the Malach Elohim from heaven. But now it's the descendants of Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, and, and through Isaac, his son then Jacob, and through Jacob, all the way down the line through Judah, through David, ultimately we come to the Christ, the savior of the world must come. Get this, that's why he had to have a chosen people. If you ever hear the word chosen or the phrase chosen people and you think, man, how come they're so lucky? Well, first of all, ask a Jew if they feel lucky. <laughs> As I've quoted before, was the line from Fiddler on the Roof, God, I know we're your chosen people. Couldn't you choose somebody else? <laughs> he chooses them because it is through them that the Christ will come, the Savior of the world. So they are chosen that we might all be chosen. And it begins right here with saying, Isaac is my boy. Isaac is the only son. Isaac is going to be the beloved because it's got to be through Isaac. Why? Because God said so. And if he says it, he does it. 1 John 4, 14, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Not just the Savior of Israel, but he comes through Israel. Again, why? Because God promised. Verse 20, so God was with the lad, and he grew, and he lived in the wilderness, and he became an archer. He became an archer. Interesting, I looked this up. Where are my notes on that? There you are. Okay, an archer. Oh, so because Sarah was a bow shot, right? And he was an archer. So we got a little parallel. Something cool is going on. Maybe she was gonna kill him, you know, and he saw that and it got in his head and then he wanted to grow up and be an archer to protect himself. Well, that's fun. The truth is this word archer is, the word in Hebrew is rava. Rava. There is another word in Hebrew, ravav, so you've got Rava and Ravav. They're very close. They look very similar. The lettering is very close, but Ravav is archer, shooter of arrows. That's not the word that's used here. The word that's used here in the Hebrew is Rava, which means great or multiplied. Think about what God is saying and what he had promised to Ishmael. God was with the lad and he grew and he lived in the wilderness and became great, and he did became multiplied, and he did. He became nations, so yes, he became great. Well, how come it says an archer in my Bible, and in the ESV, and in the NIV, and in the King James, in all of them, they all say archer. Why is it? I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. I had all afternoon to try and figure it out, and I couldn't find an answer. I can just tell you, sometimes we get so used to things being the way we are, we don't stop to ask what they really are. 
like the name James in the New Testament, as we've talked about, is Jacob. It should be the letter of Yaakov. It's not James, it's Jacob. Why did we change it? Because we changed it like five, six, eight hundred years ago, and we're stuck with it. We're just so used to it. And I, that's the closest I can come to for why they say Archer here. Not that big a deal, but the bottom line is God was with the lad, and that's what you need to focus on. That's why Ishmael ultimately would become great in his own right. God was with the lad, and he became great living out in the wilderness. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, uh, Bible students just know that's the same wilderness where the Israelites would do the bulk of their wandering, the wilderness of Paran. And his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Well, of course she did. She's an Egyptian. She's been in the house of Abraham, the tents of Abraham now for many, many years. But when it's time to get a wife for her son, she goes right back down to Egypt. Why? Because the flesh always wants to be married to the world. That's where the flesh goes. There's a draw to the world, a draw to darkness. Another funny conversation we were having in staff meeting today was simply about the fact that, that there's a tendency in us to want to be drawn to that which is dark. It's why people like horror movies. There's something, ooh, there. Now, maybe you hate horror movies. I'm dead. You don't, clearly don't like horror movies. Okay, but some people are like, oh, I just can't, ugh. What do you like about it? It scares me to death. And that's a good thing? There's a draw to the darkness. It's why sometimes relationships end up messed up. I didn't get it in high school. I did not understand this. Why is it in high school that the girls liked the bad boys? I tried to be the bad boy. It didn't work. No one bought it. It's too dorky, I guess. I don't know. Or, or the guys are drawn to the girls who are a little on the edge. I remember a, a quote years ago from Anne of Green Gables, one of the old Anne of Green Gables movies, and she said, you know, I just, I don't want to be truly wicked, I just want to be a little wicked. <laughs> what is that? It's, it's the draw to the world. It's that lure where the flesh, the flesh in me wants that. I want to be married to the world, which is why the Bible is always talking about the spirit, that having the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. The mindset on the flesh is death, Romans chapter eight. Man, set your mind on the spirit. But note again that I said God is never short on provision. Here's the proof of that, verse 20, God was with the lad. Man, talk about provision. It was presence. The best provision God can offer you in your life is his presence. He was with the lad. So note this, Ishmael was not God's choice for a people, and yet God chose to be with Ishmael just the same, which is really encouraging to me because, you know what? I wasn't born into the line of the chosen people. I'm not a Jew. I don't have that claim to fame, and yet God chose to be with me just the same. He was with the lad. Turn to Romans 11 just for a moment and listen up, ye lads and lassies. Lasses, sorry. Lassie's the dog, right? Anyway, Romans chapter 11, verse 17, and this, I hope, is familiar to you, and if it's not, get familiar with Romans 9, 10, and 11 because so much is explained here. But Romans eleven seventeen, Paul said, if some of the branches were broken off, now we're talking about a family tree here, 
the family tree of Israel, which is an olive tree, if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. The branches are what? Who? Israel. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember, it's not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Well, if the branches are Israel, who's the root? Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach. He is the root. Don't be arrogant toward the branches. Remember, the root supports you. Well, the root is a Jew. Our support comes through the line of Israel, which is the line through which Messiah came. But you will say then, verse 19, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in, which is early replacement theology. Paul's saying, some people are out there saying, hey, they were cut out and I was brought in. True, true enough, quite right, he says. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either, which is, shaking. Wait a minute, I can lose my salvation? Not what he's saying. He says, behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will also be cut off. So again, I, I, I could be cut off? Listen. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. He cut off the branches but if they come to him in faith, he will graft them right back in just as you yourself have been grafted in because that's his desire. God doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to have eternal life. And he says in verse 24, for if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into the cultivated olive tree, how much more then will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? I don't want you to be aware, unaware, brethren, or uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that yes, a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, Isaiah 59, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant, Jeremiah 31, 34, my covenant with them when I take away their sins. I got this. Paul is saying, we've been grafted into this. We like Ishmael. We're the Ishmaels. But God chose to be with the lad. He chose Isaac to be the lion of his people, but he also chose to be with the Ishmaels, those who were cast out, those who were the sons of slavery, which is where we all came from, until we're grafted back in to the family of God and that rich root of the olive tree. He says, from the standpoint of the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they're beloved, Israel is, for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Paul continues on laying this out. God chose a people through Isaac to offer all people the choice to be chosen. You have the choice to be chosen. If you have chosen Jesus, you have now become among the chosen. I've said it many times, how do I know if I'm chosen? Choose him and you're chosen. And God's given you that right, that choice. It is the greatest, most inclusive plan in all of history. So much so that 
Paul just explodes in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Back in Genesis 21, that's the point. Whether it's Isaac or Ishmael, God is the point. He's the one that matters. He's the focus. And so, yes, Ishmael must be driven out so that the focus could be on Isaac so that the Ishmaels of the world would have the opportunity to be grafted back in. It's marvelous. Now, the Lord saw it fit to include, after all that, and this wonderful story of the birth and the circumcision and the weaning, the driving out, and good stuff, serious stuff, the covenant child, the protection of Isaac. And then there's a story here that's kind of like, okay, on the surface, God adds this in, but there are some valuable principles to draw out here before we're done. Verse 22. Now it came about at that time that Abimelech, and if you're pronouncing it right, it's Pecol, Pecol, if you see the H there and you're thinking fickle, well, maybe he just wasn't someone you could count on. No, it's Abimelech and Pecol, the commander of his army, they spoke to Abraham saying, God is with you in all that you do. These guys are pagans. Abimelech, we talked about Sunday, I believe. Abimelech, yeah, means, or the Sunday before. No, Sunday. Abimelech means father king. It's a title, it's not a guy, it's a title because there's gonna be an Abimelech that deals later on with Isaac and it's not the same guy, it's a, it's a king of the Philistines but it's a title, Abimelech, father king and Pekol, who's the title of the commander of his army, Pekol means strong. So you've got the father king and the strong man who will reappear later in Genesis 26. But in verse 22, they come to Abraham and they speak to him saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, Swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my offspring or with my posterity, but according to the kindness that I have shown to you, you will show to me and to the land in which you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I swear it. Good, little pact. Nice to see the Philistines and Abraham are getting along. But note this, it's interesting to me that at this point in the story, Abraham has been vindicated as a prophet of God by the presence of God in his life, not because he's always done what was right. In fact, if anyone knows that Abraham has not always done what is right, it's Abimelech. Abimelech is fully aware. Abraham has not always been right, but God has always done right by Abraham. And so, Prophet of God, he comes to him. We know that God is with you in all that you do. And Abraham at this point is now such a strong chieftain, though he's still a sojourner in the land, he's so powerful, he's so strong, this local king wants to solidify some peace. And so principle number one, and this goes back to something I said earlier, I need not defend myself against my failures. I need not defend myself against my failures if I will remain in his presence. He will vindicate me for his purposes. 
You understand what I'm saying? What I said before, there's so many times where Christians will not walk as Christians because too much is known about us. I messed up too big in this town. I grew up in Oak Harbor, someone might say, and I did horrible things in high school and right after, and the whole town knew, how in the world can I stand up right now and follow Jesus? You can if you will stay in his presence. He will vindicate you. You don't have to go back and say, well, you know, or you don't have to just remain weak and silent. God will vindicate your failures by his presence, and that doesn't mean we don't repent. It doesn't mean we don't confess. What it means is we don't let our past weaknesses or even our past sins dictate our present life. Abraham is a prophet of God. God is with you, Abimelech says. Well, clearly he's seen Abraham blessed. And the very presence of God in Abraham's life has now eradicated this lying, this deceitfulness of before, and he is viewed as a prophet of God and a valuable ally. Think about Peter and John. Peter and John, who had just schooled the Jewish council in Jerusalem, Acts chapter four, verse 13, which says, now they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, and they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. What made Peter and John so powerful in the presence of the Jewish assembly? It was the presence of God. It was God with them. It was that they had been with Jesus and there was residual Jesus all over them. What the Jewish council didn't understand, there was the Holy Spirit of Jesus within them. And they saw that. So it doesn't matter if they were untrained. It doesn't matter if they were ignoramuses. It doesn't matter if they were fools or viewed as harmless Galileans before. Now these guys are powerful. These are some of those Jesus men, aren't they? Man, don't let your past failure negate your present witness. Stay in his presence. You stay in his presence because as God had told Abraham before, he is your defense. Remember Genesis 15, one, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward, Abraham. And right here we see that playing out. Before Abimelech, this pagan king, God is a shield to Abraham. God is his defense. Now, the story continues, having made a promise to do right by Abimelech, Abraham now brings up a matter of complaint, verse 25. But Abraham complained to Abimelech because of the well of water which the servants of Abimelech had seized he complains over a well. This kind of excites me because I think I've stood at this well. It's in a place, we'll mention in a moment here, that's in the Negev there in Israel and through archeological excavation, we're pretty sure this well is there. You can stand there and look in this well. It's like, whoa, it's stone. And it's a big hole. <laughs> And when we go to Israel, listen, we don't worship stones and bones. We worship the spirit of the living God. But it's interesting to think this well that they're arguing over right now, there's a problem with the well. And so Abraham comes complaining. The word complained in the Hebrew is hokiah. And it means to judge or to reprove. So here's the second principle. I need not roll over in my faith. And again, too many Christians do. There are too many Christians who, who have to get defensive or even quieted down because of past sin. Oh, I can't be a witness for God, I'm too messed up. Hey, the fact that God cleaned up your mess is a huge witness. 
But there are also those who just kind of roll over. They start to talk to someone, and all of a sudden they throw out a challenge to their, your faith, and it's like, Ooh. okay, I'm, let's not go there. Too many followers of Jesus think that to be gentle and peaceable, that is to be peacemakers, means that we back down from challenges. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't, you know. listen, meek doesn't mean wimp. To be mild, to be gentle, to be a peaceful follower of Jesus doesn't mean you back down. And Abraham, right here, gets right up in the face of Abimelech and says, I got a problem. It's the airing of grievances. I have a problem with you people. Your guys have stolen the well from my guys. You take, this is my well, and I dug it. Watch this, verse 26. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, nor did I hear of it until today. Well, now who's backing down? <laughs> it is amazing to me how quickly a pagan will back down when the challenge is brought back to them. Someone says to you, well, the Bible, it's just all contradictions. How about saying, can you show me one? Well, if I say that, what if they can show me one? If they're not, first of all, they're probably not going to. Secondly, there aren't any, but take it back to them. Don't back down. Ask them a question right back. Well, can you tell me about evolution? Well, I don't know a whole lot about evolution, but can you tell me about Jesus? Don't be squeamish. Be willing to go on the offensive. Consider again Peter and John in Acts chapter four. In verse 18, they had to send them out because like, these guys have been with Jesus. They've done this miracle. We gotta know what to do with them. They bring them back in. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to teach or speak at all in the name of Jesus. And so Peter and John, with their tails between their legs, scuffled out of there and never did again. They said, I love this. Whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. You can tell us to shut up, but you gotta deal with God. We can't help it. You tell us, you command us not to speak in the name of Jesus, guess what we're gonna do when we get outside the door? We're gonna speak in the name of Jesus. Man, they're bold, they're strong, they're confident. And so the Jewish leadership threatened them further and then they let them go, finding no basis with which, on which to punish them on account of the people because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. Peter and John walked away from the same guys who that year saw to the crucifixion of Jesus. Do you realize how stunning that is? Acts chapter four, Annas was there, the old crusty high priest. Caiaphas, his son-in-law, the new high priest. And these were the ones who made the decision to take Jesus to Pilate, who shouted, crucify him, and saw to his death. Same guys are standing there right before Peter and John, who, by the way, were fully aware of this. And Peter and John say, you can tell us to stop speaking about Jesus, but we can't help it. We're gonna talk about Jesus. Don't defend yourself. Just stay in his presence. Don't roll over. Just follow his lead. Verse 27, so Abraham took sheep and oxen, gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. And then Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what are these seven ewe lambs meet which you have set by themselves? And he said, you shall take these seven ewe lambs from my hand so that it may be a witness to me that I dug this well. 
which is kind of thrilling to me because then you stand there and you look at the well and you go, wow, 4,000 years ago, Abraham dug this. And I dig that. <laughs> I dug this well. Therefore, he called that place Beersheba because there the two of them took an oath. Beersheba. Beer meaning well. Beer Lahai Roy, well of the God who sees. Remember that Hagar was referred to. Beersheba, well of the sevenfold oath. The sevenfold oath, because it's a word play here. Shiva or Sheva, Sheva in Hebrew is seven. Uh, Shava in Hebrew is swear. So it's the oath, swear, Shava, but it's also the Sheva, so it's Beersheba, Beershava, Beersheba. And that's the name. And that's the well that's there at a place called Tel Beersheba today as they've excavated it and looked at it, the well of the sevenfold oath. And the reason it's called that, he gave seven lambs. This is proof that I dug the well. You take these and understand, I got rights to this. I did this. Well, verse 32, so they made a covenant at Beersheba and Abimelech and Pekol, the commander of his army. You know, Pekol, it's funny. It doesn't sound strong, does it? Sounds like Pekol. If you add chew to it, you've got a Pokemon character. Pikachu. The commander of his army arose and returned to the land of the Philistines. By the way, the Philistines, I'll mention this, they wouldn't actually become a force in the land. They wouldn't come over in force from uh, Crete. Is that right? Someone said, nod with me. Okay, good, yeah, that's right, okay. They wouldn't have come, they sailed across, they were maritime people, sailed across from Crete, but they wouldn't do that in force until the early 12th century B.C. It was long before that, like 800 years. So what, what's the deal? Well, Abimelech is a Philistine, but Abimelech's city-state, Gerar, is probably like a settlement, like a forerunning settlement that a few of them came across to settle and, and to make sure trade could happen back and forth across the Mediterranean, but it wouldn't become the full force of the Philistines taking this land that is the Gaza Strip today until much later. Verse 33, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Is that okay? He planted a tree. This is the first time he's, I don't know if he's the first time he's planted a tree, but it's the first time we see in the Abrahamic story that he plants a tree. What does he usually do? He builds an altar of stone because that lasts. That's why Jewish people today, when they go to cemeteries, will put a rock on a grave. We do flowers. Well, flowers fade and, and dry up and blow away. Rocks, they last. There's something lasting about an altar, but he plants a tree. Well, I don't know, trees can grow old, right? It still sounds kind of pagan. In fact, later on, you're gonna find out that one of the things that the pagans do in the land of Israel is they, build gro they plant groves of trees and they meet in the groves and there they practice their pagan arts. And it's a big problem among the Israelites because they start running off to the groves where they can worship the pagan gods and they still come to temple, but then they go off to the groves where it's kind of hidden and dark and in amidst the trees. And I was thinking, we need to cut some trees down around this building. We're kind of in a grove. Anyway, so he plants a tree. What's the deal with the tree? Is it pagan? Is he just trying to appeal? To no, listen. There's no law of the altar for Abraham. When he started 
building altars, and he just built four of them as we talked about on Sunday, but when he built those altars, it's not because he had to, not because the law required him to build an altar. So principle number three, we need not worship God by ritual. We worship God in spirit and truth. Why did Abraham plant a tree? Because he wanted to plant a tree. It's actually very simple. He wanted to do something God-honoring, and he thought, this time, I'm gonna plant a tamarisk tree. And it was his way of saying, I'm planting a tree because I'm gonna be here. I'm gonna tend it. I'm gonna stay here now for a while, Lord, here in Beersheba. I've got my well, I've got my tree. I wanna be here for you. Kyle and Delich say the planting of this long-lived tree with its hard wood and its long, narrow, thickly clustered evergreen leaves was to be a type of the ever-enduring grace of the faithful covenant God. And this tree that he planted has to do with, once again, what I might call divine disclosure because we have a new name that we can add to the list. We have El Elyon, we have God Most High, we have El Roy, God who sees, El Shaddai, God Almighty, and now we have here in the end of verse 33, El Olam, El Olam, God everlasting. El Olam, El God, Olam, that we translate everlasting. In Hebrew, it's actually secret or, or hidden or concealed or unknown, God unknown, God beyond us. So why do we translate it everlasting? Because to the Jewish mind, it has to do with an indefinite, unknown amount of time, or even an unknowable amount of time, that he's God everlasting. We, we will never comprehend that he's always been and will forever be. And I have said before, I think we can comprehend that a little better. We like the idea of living forever. So looking out forward into eternity, I'm good. Backward into eternity freaks me out. How does that even work? unknowable time, and that's El Olam. We translate then the everlasting God who never fails to keep his promises, back to our original list, who never misses an appointment, who never runs short on provision. There was another one, and I forgot what it is. You know it, but who, let's say number five, is also God never ending, El Olam. El Olam. God everlasting. Remember where we started tonight. We quoted Jesus saying, Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. His words are everlasting because he is everlasting. He is El Olam. Verse 34, Abraham sojourned in the land of the Philistines for many days. He's over 100 years old, <laughs> and he's still sojourning. I'm 56 and I'm really ready for things to calm down. He's 100 years old and he's still just moving about. Now he's staying in Beersheba. He's gonna be here quite a while. In fact, he will be here the rest of his life in this region. And Isaac will be born and grow up in this region in Beersheba. He's gonna stay there. Jacob's gonna move up to the central and northern part of the country. But they stay right here and yet he's still a sojourner, still has the sojourner's mentality stays near the well of the seven oaths, sojourning and homesteading, but yet he never builds a home. He lives on the land and off the land, but he will never own the land, except for that little burial cave that he's gonna buy in Hebron. Why? 
Because Hebrews 11 verse 10 says he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So this is principle number four. We need not settle for this life. Don't settle for this life. God has an appointment and Jesus is gonna keep it. And the day is fast approaching, my friends, when we will not be here. So don't settle. Don't worry. He'll keep his appointment. He's never missed one yet. Father, we thank you that you are so faithful. We thank you that you see, you oversee, Lord, all of these things. That's, that's what's amazing to me. I look at this, and, and it blows my mind how you have everything in hand, every person, every player. You know what's going on. You're never caught unaware, and you, Lord, provide, you care, you look after, you're there on time, and Father, you're everlasting. And so we praise and we worship you, everlasting God, with all our hearts, Lord. Bring us into your everlasting presence at the right time. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.